This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to this week of Burn It All Down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's the feminist sports podcast you need. This week, our panel includes guest co-host Courtney Nguyen, a senior writer and podcaster at WTA Insider. She is also the co-host of the tennis-themed podcast, No Challenges Remaining. She joins us today from London, the basement of Wimbledon, actually. Lindsay Gibbs, a sports reporter at Think Progress in Washington, D.C., Brenda Elsie, an associate history professor at Hofstra University in New York, and me, I'm Jessica Luther, a freelance journalist based in Austin, Texas. We have a great show for you this week. First, we're going to talk tennis, specifically about sexism that keeps popping up in the sport in different ways, but I'm sure we'll also fawn over these last two weeks of play at Wimbledon. Then we'll discuss the U.S. Women's Open being held at Trump National Golf Course and what is happening with Title IX under the new Secretary of Education. We'll cap it off with the burn pile and our badass woman of the week. So let's jump right into topic number one. Lindsay, tell us about tennis. Hello, everyone. This is my favorite topic, as you all know, to talk about. Um, Unfortunately, Wimbledon is over, but what a fortnight it was. Uh, As of this recording, we have Garbini Muguruza, who has taken the women's title with a commanding 7-5, 6-love performance over our dear Venus Williams. Uh, Also, just to give everyone a lay of the land, our doubles champions were Elena Vesnina and Ekaterina Makarova, who took out Hao Ching Chan and Monica Niculescu in a double bagel, meaning they did not drop a single game. Uh, Men's doubles was quite the opposite, where you had Lucas Cabot and Marcelo Mello taking out Oliver Mark and Mate Pavic 13-11 in the fifth set Uh, Wimbledon is, I think, the only place besides Davis Cup that does five sets for men's doubles, and it's a bit ridiculous. Uh, As we are recording, this is Sunday morning, and Marin Cilic and Roger Federer are just taking the court to battle it out for the men's title. And I should note that there will be a Brit winning Wimbledon this year. In the mixed doubles final, we have Jamie Murray and Martina Hingis, who are taking on Heather Watson and Henri Continen, who are, I believe, the defending champions of the mixed doubles tournament. So we will not know the winner of that, but want to give everybody a shout out. Of course, here at Burn It All Down, as Jess mentioned, we're going to keep this focused on a topic that rears its ugly head every single year, which is sexism at Wimbledon. Uh, In my opinion, tennis is always a really interesting sport to look at the difference between how we treat 
genders in sport. Um, this is a topic I write about across sport, the sporting landscape. But for tennis, you have this case where the women are making equal money to the men at the majors. They're playing on the same stage as the men. So it's the same tournament officials who are treating them and um, dealing with them. And it's also, for the most part, the same media who is talking about them you know it's you don't have the exact same media talking about the WNBA and the NBA because there are different people on different beats but at the tennis tournaments the media is kind of one entity and they take the men's stories or the women's stories as they come um of course there are definitely always some who don't take any women's stories but we can discuss that as we go so I always think it's look it's interesting to look at the ways that women are not treated equally at Wimbledon this year we had among other things court scheduling some media issues and I don't know just a whole array of topics that we're going to get into Courtney you are in the basement of Wimbledon, literally. I I wanted to, to bring it to you. I know that you get an up-close and personal view of especially how the media treats the genders differently at Wimbledon. Was there anything that stood out to you this particular fortnight that was different? It's always interesting at Wimbledon, as you said, Lindsay, because it does... Every time this tournament rolls around, a lot of the same topics come up. There are these pet topics that whether it's because it's it's the British media that, that kind of drive it. And obviously there's there's the beat writers within the British media who are alongside me, you know, every single week as we go to tournament to tournament. They know their tennis. They know the players. They know the backstories. But you also have the local media and, and what they call the news media here who kind of parachute in, don't have relationships with the players, don't care to have relationships with the players, don't care if they piss somebody off or, or not, and they're just really driving headlines um, and trying to get clicks. And so whenever Wimbledon comes around, you start to see the same sort of topics, you know, grunting in tennis, equal prize money, um, you know, a lot of fashion type stuff uh, when it comes to discussion of the women this year. I think that one of the big topics early on in the, in the first week that was really reminding me that I don't... You know, sometimes male sports writers just are a little out of their league, or maybe they're just not as uh, <laughs> quite as sensitive to um, to kind of the things that the women go through. But a lot of the discussion around Victoria Azarenka's pregnancy, and um, oh. and it just became nonstop every single time. And Azarenka, if people don't know, former number one, two-time major champion for a long time when she was up there at number one, many considered her to be the only challenger to Serena Williams. Uh, on the court, they had you know great matches. Serena would end up beating her t generally in the slams, but on the tour level, Victoria Azarenka was always right there and really, really pushing her in a way that, like for example, we don't see with Maria Sharapova uh, and some of the other women on the tour, the marquee names on the tour. She took uh, you know about a year off, had a son, uh, gave birth in December, and in uh, Wimbledon was just her second tournament back, which means that it was this really the first tournament where. Uh, Vika kind of had to deal with the mass amount of press uh, kind of delving into her pregnancy and her comeback and all these sorts of things. And it just was mind boggling to me as she's playing a great tournament at Wimbledon. She made the second week, which is fantastic for her. Um, got some great wins, you know, ended up losing to Simona Halep in straight sets on uh, Manic Monday. But like 90% of the questions were about the baby and about being a mom on tour and you know, and some of them were legit. You know, obviously it's a big part of her storyline and she um, she's happy to talk about it. But the whole time that I was in the room, I was just kind of standing there thinking like, this woman's in the midst of competition. 
Like she's playing matches, matches that matter greatly to her. She's making a charge to basically try and win the U.S. Open this coming uh, fall. The X's and O's still matter. But at the end of the day, everybody wanted to focus on the baby and how has it changed you and how has being a mother um, changed you as a person and all these. It, it just got really old, in my opinion. Um, and then, of course, there was the big moment that kind of went a little bit viral with a Swiss male reporter asking her, I think after her second or third round win, you know, there's been no, the question was basically posited as there's been no uh, tennis player that has balanced, you know, being a professional on tour and being a parent like, and I genuinely thought he was going to say Kim Clijsters, but yeah. no, it was Roger, it was Roger Federer. Oh and it my was God. Like, you know, <laughs> and, and, and the kicker, that's, that's the shot. Here's the chaser. The, the, the kicker was, um, you know, do you take inspiration from him? Oh my God. As a parent on tour. And, no. Bless Vika. She she doesn't really fall for anything like that. And she said, um, no, I got zero inspiration from Roger. I'm pretty sure we're in different situations. <laughs> and I was in the I was in the front of the room, kind of because the room was packed, and so I was standing against the wall, almost to the right of Vika. And I looked at all the women in the room, and everybody. We were all just exchanging, you know, Jim Halpert looks at each other. Like, is this <laughs> happening right now? Like, did that question really just get asked? It's that sort of thing where I'm kind of like, really, you really do think that, you know, it's the same for Roger Federer traveling with an army of nannies, the father who can sleep in a separate room uh, with kids who are at this point kind of grown up, uh, that it's the same for Vika traveling with what is a 60 month old child um, and the different stresses. But they really the backlash to me calling that out was really surprising. Um, I don't know why it was surprising. I should know better. But uh, <laughs> But I was on the BBC um, a breakfast show the next day, and I was saying, you know, yes, I do think that it's different for a woman to have a child on tour than the men because there are just certain things that women can do that men don't have to do and that women have to do. And the female presenter interrupted me. She was, I think she was trying to pull the feminist card. It was like, well, hold on. Like, everything's equal, and the men and can do things now, and they take... I'm like, no, a six-month child... I'm pretty sure there are certain things that only Azarenka can do <laughs> to the extent that if she's nursing, if, you know, all these sorts of things. I just like, really, do you, I have to get in on this, you know, on the BBC right now? Um, and those are the, those are those moments, you know, whether it's that or, you know, Andy Murray calling out, you know, the casual sexism of forgetting the Williams sisters. It's, it's nonstop sometimes in tennis because as Lindsay said the men and the women the beat writers they you know the, the players play side to side and then the the writers are charged with writing on both and a lot of times sorry fellow guys in the room you're just not equipped to talk about the women in a sophisticated or even uh intelligent basic way and it's very very frustrating Courtney, I think one of the things that really struck me about uh, Vika was when she talked about the accommodations for mothers on the tour. Um, uh, did you did you know about that? That like there were just different childcare kind of accommodations for the men versus the women because it's so rare for the women to travel with their babies. It's interesting because I didn't know that there was a difference. So yeah. I didn't know that the men had full blown, you know, uh, nursery facilities at their tournaments. For the women, I knew that like tournament to tournament, it does vary. And so much of that has to do with, and 
you know, obviously this is the big anniversary of equal prize money at the slams. And ever since that happened, people kind of assume that the men and the women are operating on the same financial base. Um, and the thing about it is, and I hate saying it, but equal prize money is a bit of a misnomer. Uh, on the tour level, when you compare the ATP versus the WTA, forget the slams, but you compare the tour levels, the, 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 the financial payout is massively different. There's a huge delta. So much of that has to do with the money that's going into these tournaments. And so therefore, a lot of the tournaments that we do have on the tour level maybe don't have the resources financially to provide for, you know, childcare and things like that. And so for the women, you know, Victoria Azarenka is not the only mom on tour. There are lower ranked players that do travel with their children who have taken time off and had babies and come back. They don't have Vika's millions. Um, they travel with their husbands who oftentimes are their coaches or part of their team. There's a lot of kind of, um, it's cute. I mean, you go to the player lounge at some of the lower level tournaments and it's other players babysitting the kids while mom's out on the court playing. Oh, wow. Um, I've been in instances where, you know, we have one player, Katerina Bondarenko, and a couple years ago at a tournament in Stanford, she was out there playing Alina Svitolina, who's now the number four player in the world. And the baby was literally courtside sleeping um, uh, kind of under the tunnel and her husband, who was also her coach had to kind of stand over there and watch as her, his wife was competing in this really brutal third set. And the baby woke up and started crying and on the changeover, she could hear it as she's trying to play this match. And she ended up losing and was devastated by the loss because it was a big opportunity for her. But then she like, has to run off, uh, you know, and immediately take care of the kid because and the dad literally was like, sorry, I don't know what to do. The baby's crying and only only mom can take care of her right now. You know, and these are the things that, again, that kind of happen in the shadows outside of the spotlight of the top players um, that uh, that we're definitely aware of. And hopefully I, I do hope that Azarenka, as she said in her press conference, um, you know, becomes uh, spearheads that change. I mean, we're going to have another high profile baby soon <laughs> on tour with Serena Williams. So I suspect that they'll, they'll be quite uh, quite the, the models for change. Wow. Thank you so much for that. That is so interesting. And from as much I know about tennis, I didn't I didn't have any idea. I didn't even think about that, which kind of blows my mind. Um, Brenda, I wanted to bring you in. Uh, one of the things that we wanted to talk about uh, with tennis this week is Muguruza and specifically her coach, Conchita Martinez. Um, can you tell us a little bit about like what you were reading about Conchita this week? Yeah, thanks, Jess. So this week I spent a lot of time perusing the Spanish media about Conchita Martinez because she's just come on, as I understand, pretty recently, though she's been the Davis Cup uh, coach for, for quite a while, but she's come on recently. Um, and so it's been fascinating to watch how El País treats her and, and other Spanish media like El Mundo and stuff. And what I've found is that they treat they have this really um, caricature that they've built about Conchita Martinez as a snippy, cold uh, personality or a firecracker. It goes back and forth, like either she's dynamic and explosive or she's snippy and cold. And it, it's kind of this negative um, portrayal that I see coming up again and again. But I find it fantastic to see the generations of women here. I mean, Conchita Martinez uh, is the only Spanish wom woman who's won Wimbledon until now. And she played Venus. And so I think that's so amazing, amazing to think about that. 
And when the Spanish press was going on and on and asking, you know, how's your player doing? She seems, Garbina seems super cold. Conchita oh, was, that's what they kept saying. That, that, that was their question. They just kept hammering her. She seems really cold. She doesn't seem herself. And Conchita was great. She said, she's perfect. She's perfect. I have no idea what you're talking about. So the entire tournament, I mean, she just like shut them down in this like fantastic way, which of course she must have a lot of experience with because she's been dealing with captaining the men's Davis Cup squad for Spain, which is a huge deal. Um, and so, you know, so she's sort of like this. I've just been fascinated to watch her because as much as Garbina has been concentrated and in her game, man, Conchita is just shutting down the Spanish press around it. Just she is fine. She is not cold. She is perfect. She is what we call concentrated, fellas. She is focused, <laughs> you know, and I'm sorry she doesn't want to kind of like pal around with you but you know she's she's perfect so i just was really happy for them both and i thought it was really a beautiful thing that a former player would now be coach you know who played venus would now be coaching her own and it just seems like they could have done a great series on that that they didn't you know what does what does that mean to see the development of the women's game and and things like that over time so anyway that's what i've been doing this week in spanish media i'm always a little scarred when I pay too much attention to Spanish media and its <laughs> coverage of women. That's so interesting. And didn't she, um, you were, you were telling us before, like she's got a bunch of pushback with like within Spain for being the coach of the team, which we've talked before on this podcast about how rare it is for female coaches in tennis, just generally, even on the women's side. So like her presence is a big deal just in that fact, but then she's also gotten pushback within her country for being the coach of the Davis Cup? Do I have that right? Yeah. I mean, most most prominently what I've seen is criticism coming from Rafael Nadal's uncle, Tony, who was his coach also until quite recently. And his sort of criticism and implication that he should have been chosen for that position, which, oh, which see. seems odd because Conchita Martinez has a lot more experience playing and coaching a variety of players versus her nephew um and so so yeah she's got she's gotten criticism kind of all around on on that point but tony nadal most prominently at least from from the research that i've done has been her her primary critic and um he you know has retired right now from coaching nadal as far as i understand correct me <laughs> if i'm wrong here it's but, about to yeah don't worry yeah. you got it you're on it yeah, so I think Conchita's kind of come out ahead in this. Like, I think she's managed it just with a ton of grace. Courtney, what are you? What are your thoughts on what's going on with Conchita and Muguruza and all this discussion? Yeah, it's you know so often when you have these um, national press corps, and and again, it, it's an interesting thing within tennis because you are charged with covering the entire sport, but the way that it works, especially outside of the states, is that you really do focus on your national players, and when you don't have a, you know, in the States, we are so spoiled because we constantly have top women in the WTA. So the men who are sports writers in tennis are actually really well equipped. They've lived through it. They're great. Um, I have to say that about my colleagues. But in other countries, when they get their breakout star, the star that now deserves uh, the, the attention and, and the coverage, they're kind of just not trained with how to do it. And one thing that I've really found 
you know, um, following not just like Muguruza, but maybe, for example, Britain with uh, Johanna Kanta. They have a player who's in the top five on Monday. Um, and it's been a long time since a British player has been that good. Uh, Simona Halep, it's been a long time since a Romanian female player has been that good. The, the national press doesn't know how to deal with it. And so these basic things about like Garbina Muguruza is a professional. She's a, she's professional in the way that she goes about her business. The fact that she does not sit there and smile and flirt with you during uh, interviews, does she doesn't make you feel good, uh, you know, and make you feel, oh, this is just a lovely, fun interview. They end up internalizing that and, and, and it becomes part of their writing. She's cold. She's uninteresting. She's boring. Um, you know, like Johanna Kanta had a great run to the to the uh, semifinals, losing to Venus. They were like, oh, you know, she's having a great run here, but she just doesn't she doesn't engage with the crowd enough. That's that's a problem. It's like, oh, my gosh, like you guys have not had a British champion here in 40 years. And this is what you're complaining about. She could win this tournament. What are you talking about? They just can't focus on the tennis. It, it's so difficult for them to do it. And so they're constantly trying to find other angles. And I don't think that necessarily they mean to. I mean, I know a lot of the Spanish reporters and, you know, they're, they're great people, but that's what they focus on is this is, is they're so much more inclined to focus on personality and spin things negatively than to focus on a person's tennis and just be like, she's good. She's your two time major champion. She's, you know, potential future number one. Um, she's putting Spanish women's tennis back on the map. Um, you know, and so with Conchita, I can absolutely understand her reaction uh, being that way. And so often you'll see with some of these these women who stay in the game for a long time, it's a lot of times the sins of like 10, 15 years ago, maybe the Spanish media who are still around. They didn't like Conchita then. They don't like her now. Um, and it all kind of comes up. And because, you know, we see this all the time when it comes to women's media or women in pop culture or whatever. If there were more Spanish champions, if there were female champions, if there were more female tennis players uh, who were Spanish in the top 20, maybe things wouldn't be that big of a deal to them because they'd be desensitized to it all or they'd be used to kind of the way that the women's tour is. But everything is so alien to them that it's just it's so frustrating to hear about their coverage and to see their coverage because they just don't bring any nuance and they don't try to. It, they just they just don't care to. I, I don't want to necessarily go here, but it does remind me of maybe like a political campaign season that we might have just gone through. Um, Lindsay, yeah, Lindsay, uh, <laughs> do you have thoughts on, on Conchita? Well, I just want to just very quickly note this is, I mean, this is obvious in our talk and if you've been listening, but it needs to be stressed. We've had two back-to-back -back Grand Slam champions with female coaches, and that is incredible and very rare. So you had Ostapenko, who had Annabelle Medina Garrigas uh, coaching her, another Spanish uh, player. And then now we have Conchita Martinez. And for a sport that has lacked female coaches and for the men who have taken over the titles of the super coaches, this is a huge deal. And I hope to see a lot of writing on it, although i guessing I won't. <laughs> uh -oh. It's like you have experience on this, Lindsay. Um, <laughs> the last thing that I want to talk about with tennis uh, for now in the podcast is is court scheduling. I feel like I mean, there was a lot of uh, fervor uh, on Monday, uh, Manic Monday as it's called at Wimbledon this last week, uh, around court scheduling. And I feel like this is like real inside baseball for people who don't follow tennis. So like, Courtney, will you talk us through what 
what were people upset about? Why does court scheduling, why does it matter so much? And like, why were people so upset about what happened this year? Sure. I mean, court scheduling is a funny thing. And as you said, it's very inside baseball. But when you're sitting at home and you're watching, court scheduling doesn't matter. Let's just put that out there. You see a court, you know, it, it doesn't matter and the players play and it's fine. But it, it is seen as a issue of respect and an issue of opportunity. You know, at the end of the day, you know, if you schedule certain players not on the center courts, not on the big courts, what you're saying is that we just don't think that they're worthy of it. And at a tournament like Wimbledon, um, you know, which prides itself in kind of being this uh, arbiter of what is worthy or not worthy or the, you know, they, the pursuit of greatness is their, their motto, it's taken very, very seriously when they disrespect or it's perceived to be that they've disrespected great champions. And so on Monday, um, and again, just a little bit of background, there's multiple courts here, obviously, at Wimbledon. Their two main courts are center court and number one court. In both of those courts, play starts a little bit later on those courts. It starts at 1 p.m. And there's typically only three matches scheduled on those courts. Now, that's in stark contrast to the French Open, the Australian Open, and the U.S. Open, where typically there are four matches minimum scheduled on those courts. So with three courts, inevitably, there's always going to be, or I'm sorry, three matches on each of those courts, there's inevitably going to be an imbalance. And at Wimbledon, it's almost always favored the men. Uh, in a vast, I mean, the it's not even worth looking up the statistics. It's just always been, it's always two men's matches, one woman's match. Occasionally they'll mix it up, but they definitely do it, didn't do it here. Throughout the first um, week, Venus Williams was never put on center court. She's a five-time champion here, uh, you know, and, and she'd never been put on that court. On Monday, she finally got the position on center court. And it was ironic because actually the match that she was playing kind of didn't deserve to be on center court. Like it wasn't like one of the best matches of what was an incredible day of women's tennis. Um, you had world number one, Angelique Kerber and Garbina Muguruza shunted to number two court. You had um, Simona Halep and Victoria Azarenka shunted to number two court. Um, so it was a bit of an odd schedule. And it comes down to and opened up the discussion of why does this always happen at Wimbledon? Every year we talk about how in particular Serena and Venus have always kind of gotten the short end of the stick here at the club in terms of their court assignments. Um, you know, you would never see the number one male player, regardless of who he is, having to play on number two court or number three court. And yet in years past, we've seen that with Serena. And we've seen that in terms of like the multiple champions, we've seen that with Venus, you know, really have to stick in until the second week until she gets onto center court. And so it's opened up a discussion. Andy Murray, the feminist that he is, and the only person that really <laughs> would speak out on these, these issues with respect to the men, um, he was on the BBC and he said, I don't see why center court and number one court can't start earlier. And we put four matches on there. Um, and then you can have two women's matches and two men's matches, easy, done and dusted. The tournament will most likely say, no, we like our tradition. And also, um, you know, we don't want tons of matches played on the main show courts because that's where all the matches will be played towards the end of the tournament and grass does wear down. That's another uh, storyline for this tournament. So it's all it's all a thing, it, it, but it's always, it, I think at every tournament, there's always an instance where you look at the order of play that comes out the day before and you're like, well, that's weird. Why, why wouldn't they put like this woman on this court? Um, and it's just, uh, it's an easy thing, I think, for the All England Club to fix. And maybe as Murray 
um, you know, keeps bringing it up or, or supports it, maybe it'll change, but they do love their tradition here. Yeah, they do. I mean, I think one thing that's interesting about, you know, this is the 10 year anniversary of Wimbledon finally doing equal pay for the winners. And they were, they were the holdout, man. Like they like their traditions in ways that are um, problematic maybe is, is the nice word. Um, Lindsay, do you have anything on court scheduling? Just that it's, I'm over it (laughs) as far as like, (laughs) this keeps happening every single year. I feel like every single year I write an article. I know last year I wrote about Venus Williams calling them out. I know that, you know, it just, it just keeps happening. And you know, it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy when you don't, um, people know that these are signs of respect. And so when you're deciding that these matches are worth less and should be valued less, it turns out they end up being valued less, you know, um, these, these things do matter. And it's like, like we've said, there, there's an easy fix here. This is not, this is not rocket science. We can, we can fix this. So let's fix it. Courtney, last word on this? Yeah, just like what Lindsay was saying, you know, the constant refrain from people who are anti-equal prize money is nobody cares about the women. Broadcasters don't pay for it. They want to see the men. People queue up overnight and line up to see the men. We got to give the people what they want. But here's the thing. Johanna Conta and Simona Halep played an incredible quarterfinal match. That match in Britain on the BBC, they canceled the uh, 6 p.m. news, which is like a big deal, apparently, to continue to hold that match on BBC One, the primary BBC channel. That match peaked at like 7.5 million households, which is more than what Rafael Nadal and Gilles Muller the day before, two days before, got in their five-set epic that ended 5,000 to 1 to 5,000 to 3 in the fifth set. If you give them the stage, if you give them the opportunity, these women will surprise you. And to the extent that the club or any, you know, uh, situation in tennis, it's not just at Wimbledon. This happens everywhere, but it's particularly onerous at Wimbledon because of how they scheduled the main courts. Um, You know, you're constantly forcing the women uphill and you're constantly stacking the deck against them. And as somebody who, you know, covers the tour on a daily basis and worldwide and travels with them, like that's this is the fight that we fight every single day is this uphill battle to get the women in front of the camera, to get them in front of microphones, to get them in the paper, to get people to care about them. And when you limit that, don't sit there and friggin' complain to me that nobody cares. It just doesn't work that way. It's incredibly infuriating. Let's talk about a different space right now where the cameras are on a women's sport that doesn't necessarily get that all the time. Uh, So the U.S. Women's Open is currently happening at Trump National Golf Course. Brenda, you want to walk us through? I mean, I think maybe that little teaser explains why there's news about this, but (laughs) Brenda, do you want to give us more on this? Yeah, this is the 72nd iteration of the U.S. Women's Open, and it's running from July 13th. It started Thursday, uh, wraps up the 16th today, Sunday, and it's at Trump National Golf Club. This is in Bedminster, New Jersey, and it's also gotten a lot of attention because the prize money is up to $5 million this year, which is as high as it's ever been. And of course, since the election of Donald Trump, this was already scheduled, by the way, years ago. But since the election, it's become a lightning rod for those who wanted it to be moved and those who were very excited that Donald Trump might be involved, appear, you know, have some sort of association 
with it. And even several U.S. senators, and, and Lindsay has a great piece on this this week in Think Progress, so she'll talk about this too, but several U.S. senators urged the USGA, the United States Golf Association, to move the tournament, and, and they did so because of, quote, a pattern of degrading and dehumanizing women, end of quote. And so this has really sparked a big conversation beyond golf, and both supporters and protesters showed up, and Trump himself appeared, uh, people were wondering if he would or not. And there were chants of make America great again. And then there were signs oh, wow. protesting. And what kills me about this issue is that the USGA executive director, Mike Davis, says that this isn't about politics, which implies that protesting this is a partisan position. So basically, people that think women and immigrants deserve respect are making what I consider to be a human rights, basic human rights issue, a partisan issue. Like, well, I disagree with you about a budget and we need to spend X on the military defense. That's a political argument. Women shouldn't be sexually assaulted is a universal human rights uh, argument. So I, I, it makes my ears smoke when I hear Mike Davis say that this is a political issue. Um, because it casts the people who have objections to this as somehow like angling to do this, uh, you know, self-serving stuff. So anyway, it's been going on and a couple things jump out at me. And one is that uh, the membership to Bedminster or Trump National Golf Club is $300,000 a year. So Jesus Christ, <laughs> just, just going to throw that out there. I don't, I don't know how many people can afford that. But one of the ways that Trump has sort of ingratiated himself in the LPGA which doesn't run the tournament, but obviously is connected to it, is by offering young top talent membership to these golf courses. And uh, and he has not just one, but it, but he says himself he has almost 20% of all, he owns almost 20% of golf courses in the United States. I have no idea if that's true, but that's something he's he's actually said. And a number of top golfers like Lexi Thompson says she loves playing uh, golf with Trump Natalie Golbus, who's now not a top player, but certainly was, uh, spoke at the Republican National Convention on behalf of him. Uh, a lot of people have expressed being really happy. And then there's this really awkward thing happening for me or, or a changing landscape that I'm trying to understand. Because when you look at it, only one of the top 10 women's golfers is from the United States. So for the last 10 years, it's been a majority of international players, especially from China, but also, um, you know, Korean players, Thai players. And so it's kind of fascinating because you have this really global sport and then you have an injection of this figure who's who's been really polarizing in terms of immigrants. So the one person that I saw was Lizette Salas, who um, expressed her dismay. She's Mexican-American. Uh, both her parents are, are Mexican. And her dismay about how she felt uh, upset about the immigration talk uh, around the Trump campaign. And so she was the only one I found that, that had actually come out to express some dismay, not about the Gulf itself, but about that, that politics. So I don't know. I'm just really curious as to, as, as to what's going to happen with this within Gulf. Lindsay, you wrote about this this week and you called this a lose-lose situation. Can you talk more about like who we should be looking at here around this issue? I, a lot of focus has been on players. How do you feel about this? I would love to. Um, 
as anyone who knows me or follows my work, I love athlete activism. I love when athletes speak out and use their voices and use their platforms, especially female athletes. I do not think that the anger that um, people who um, are frustrated with the things that our president stands for, I don't think that that anger should necessarily be focused on the players in this case. I think it should be firmly placed with the USGA and the LPGA for allowing this to continue when they could have stopped this. Um, Mainly, it's because golf is so conservative. These women are playing already for a much smaller part of the pie than the men are. Um, They're fighting for attention. I mean, look, the LPGA is a very healthy professional sports league. Don't get me wrong. Um, These women are doing really well, um, but it's, it's not anywhere near the money that their male counterparts are making, and they don't get the benefits that tennis does of sharing the stage. So, so you've really got to think that this is their biggest tournament of the year. They play for an audience that is overwhelmingly male, white, and rich, which we know that demographic skews overwhelmingly conservative. Trump has, of all the things I can um, hate Trump for and do speak out against Trump for, he has been a supporter of the LPGA Tour throughout the years. Um and for many of them, he's been, you know, he's invited them to play. He's, Natalie Golba said he used to talk to her about equal prize money. Now, I don't think that these are things that we should all say and start getting a soft spot for them, for him. But they're things that these golfers have experienced. I just think that these players are in, like you said, Jess, a lose-lose situation. I know that uh, Christy Kerr was asked by a New York Times reporter. Um, They were doing a piece on this, and she was doing an interview with a New York Times reporter. She happened to be doing this interview within a house on the course because it had just started raining during a practice round. So um, Karen Krause was asking her a question about Trump and, you know, the politics of this all while she was in someone's kitchen who would let them come in from the rain. And while she was answering this question, which was very, a very mild way to answer, but saying that, yes, his bullying can be problematic, but that, you know, it wasn't a, I hate this guy or anything, or, you know, down with Trump. It wasn't a very, very resistance-filled message. But the owner of the house started filming her, and she said she felt really uncomfortable, and she didn't want that to stop. And then he essentially kicked her out. I mean, not in so many words, but it got to the point where she felt like she couldn't say anything bad at all about Trump while she was in this person's house who was giving her shelter during the rain and he was giving other players shelter as well. But I think that just really sticks to the conundrum that these players are in. Um, Most of their sponsors are conservative. Most of their fans are conservative. The people who are running these events are very, very, very conservative. And if they speak out, they're risking a whole, whole lot in a career that is a very fragile. There's no guarantees. It's, it's like in, in tennis, you're not playing under guaranteed contracts here. You have to go out every week and win in order to make a living. So I really think that it's ridiculous that the USGA allowed it to get this way. Let me just be very clear about this thing. There is no depoliticizing an event that is held at the golf course owned 
by the current president of the United States. Like that is just not a you don't get to you don't get to stick to sports when that happens. It's natural that reporters are going to be there. They're going to be asking questions, especially when there's a president who has been so demeaning to women. Um, the USGA, I, I think, addressed this, the broach the subject of moving this tournament in 2015. So this tournament was awarded in 2012. They broached the subject of moving it in 2015 when Trump first announced his candidacy. And essentially, Trump threatened to sue them, and they felt they, they were stuck. They said, well, that's it. Look, the USGA has a lot of money. This is not owned by the Women's Tour. This is owned by the USGA. They have a lot, a lot of money. And I think it's really sad that they that they back down as opposed to just just taking a stand then and just saying, look, like we, you know, we don't support this. And I also like to say that it's ridiculous that Trump wouldn't allow that and that he has now gone to this event so much, which is slowing down the play. The players have to, are having to go through so much extra security because he's there. And also there's a thing that he's tweeting and promoting an event that is held at a business that he is profiting for while he is president. oh boy uh courtney so golf and tennis often get compared a lot in the ways that um for female and male athletes and you know talking about the two different tours and all these sorts of things so like what what kind of comparisons make sense here which ones don't like what is your takeaway about what's happening right now with the u.s open or the women's open yeah i mean so much of it sounds uh familiar uh for me as as someone in tennis insofar as like the, fe- the women players getting dragged into conversations. They had no like business starting. They, they just, they're not even a part of it, but they get put into situations where they become somehow the lightning rod because they do speak up or they don't speak up or uh, they speak up in the way that you don't want them to. And it becomes this whole, you know, mishmash of things. And, you know, so long as, I mean, we've seen it in tennis, even recently this year, you know, uh, Simona Halep, a Romanian, um, there was a big old dust up uh, during a Fed Cup tie between Romania and Britain and uh, their Fed Cup captain, Ilya Nastasi, the nasty one, uh, as we know from, from the old days in tennis, ended up just, I mean, verbally abusing the, the British team, the British captain, making some sexist, highly sexist remarks. Um, against uh, uh, Anne Kiyothevong, the British captain, kind of like they have to do a ceremonial handshake and he like asked her what her room number was. Um, this is all like in oh public in front of everyone and, and things like that. And, and somehow the ire then focused on Halep and, and what she would say and what she wouldn't say. And, oh, she, you know, she went so far as to say that was unacceptable and, you know, that they don't, she doesn't agree with it and things like that. But she didn't go so far as to say, that he should be banned from tournaments and and also those sorts of things as well and you know with the, and I remember going onto Twitter and defending her a little bit to people who thought that she didn't make as strong a you know a feminist statement and and kind of saying you guys realize she's Romanian right she is the number one female athlete in Romania she has been well supported by Jan Tiriak who owns the tournament that was in question she is not in a position to to beat back on the man who helped fund her career while she was younger. I mean, these are things that are, and why are we again focusing on what Simona Halep said or didn't said as opposed to what Ilya Nastasi did? It, it just always seems that whenever like a man does something idiotic and stupid, and then the women say or don't say what people want them to say, it's like, oh, well, 
you know, uh, they're stupid or they're not helping the cause, things like that. I mean, in tennis, even in the States, since the election, you've had a handful of players, uh, women who have, you know, been quite open about how they feel politically about the situation. Um, and you've had a lot that have completely been silent and that's okay too. But, um, but invariably, I don't know, it just seems like the girls, the women are always the ones that have to bear the brunt of it. And um, and it, it's incredibly frustrating, even for I know in tennis with the Russian players, you know, in the, the 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 wake of all of the Russian hacking stuff and all the stuff with Putin, you know, they get constantly asked, you know, what's it like being in America? What, you know, does it feel wow. weird? And you know, all that. And the Russians are like, dude, this has nothing to do with us. What is, what are you talking about? But I don't see Russian men's players being asked those questions. It's it's a very odd thing it's it's a lot of times just the women getting dragged into conversations that they 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 have no business being a part of it's not their fault that they're in them and then everybody judges them based on and harshly more often than not for for what they say or what they don't say and it, again it's it's just incredibly frustrating Brenda last word on this one I just that I agree with Lindsay too in regards to the bearing the the burden here will be the USGA and I think there's going to be a lot of serious questions going forward because it's emerged that Bedminster is actually not ranked as, you know, the best place to even hold this tournament. And so why they would have made this deal and how it's being used to put forward a brand, a business brand of a political figure is something I think that they're really going to have to grapple with because even if their fan base is incredibly affluent and even as their website says, the most sought after sports fan base in the world, because Rolex, period. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it, it's still something you're going to have to deal with if you want a fan base. I mean, look, you know, I, younger people are the ones that you also want to capture and they may or may not respond to that. So it'll be really interesting to see going forward. Yeah, one thing that happened that was very interesting was Christine Brennan, um, who's like a pioneer female sports reporter, she really went in on the USGA. She continually asked at a press conference, quote, does the USGA have a position on sexual assault because of all the things that have been reported about the current president of the United States who whose name is on the golf course that these women were about to play at? And it was they didn't want to give her an answer, basically. Like, in person, they dodged her. They finally sent her a couple, she said three hours later, a spokesperson sent her an email that basically said they have a long, the USGA has a longstanding policy on harassment. Our staff code of conduct prohibits any workplace harassment, that sort of thing. Very generic. In the, in the column that Brennan wrote about this, she wrote, quote, the largest untapped market for golf is girls and women, especially the daughters of Title IX. Millions upon millions of them who will remain athletic for their entire lives, presumably with a fair share of disposable income, right? She's really looking forward here as like, where's golf going to go? And the USGA needs to be really aware of that. The last thing that we wanted to talk about today is actually Title IX. And I hope you guys will indulge me a little bit. It's very hard for me to speak quickly about this issue, and in part because I know a lot about it. But um, so this week, the new Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, she made news when she had a day of closed door meetings with advocacy groups about guidance for Title IX. And so I want to explain why she was doing this and what it means. And so for those who don't know, Title IX is a federal education statute. It was passed in 1972. And it's actually 
only 37 words long, and this is really important. And I actually want to read it because a lot of people don't even know what Title IX is. So, quote, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. That is the entirety of Title IX. And what it means is that the federal government, they're not going to give money to an educational institution that will then use that to discriminate, right? And we have similar measures. There's Title VI in the Civil Rights Act around race, Title II disability rights um, for people with disabilities. So it's really, we need to be really clear in this conversation that Title IX is a civil rights issue. It's about protecting civil rights. It's about creating and maintaining equal access to education no matter a student's sex or gender. Okay, so because the statute is only 37 words long, the Department of Education, they're the ones tasked with setting guidelines that tell institutions what they have to do in order to be, uh, you know, legally following Title IX. And so some of these guidelines get flushed out in court when, in, when institutions get sued, um, but mainly it's the federal government setting these guidelines. And so until a few years ago, you know, the most well-known application of Title IX was increasing gender equity in sport. That's still a big part of this. But DeVos, the thing she was meeting about this week was to talk about what the DOE, the Department of Ed, under her watch is going to do about Title IX guidelines in regards to issues of sexual harassment, dating violence, stalking, and sexual assault. So the idea here is that if a victim, if you're a victim of gendered violence, it's likely your access to education will be impeded if you have to share space with the person who harmed you. And I want to say it again, Title IX is about civil rights and access to education. So there are a lot of opponents to these guidelines, which were put into place in 2011 by the Obama administration. Uh, these opponents are people who say they've been falsely accused of harassment or assault, but punished as if guilty. These are people who shout about things like due process rights as if this is a criminal court of law rather than a civil rights matter. These are people who claim, like Candace Jackson, the top civil rights official at the DOE, and you heard me right, this is a top civil rights official at the DOE, um, people who claim like she did this week that, quote, the accusations, 90% of them, fall into the category of, we were both drunk, we broke up, and six months later I found myself under a Title IX investigation because she had just decided that our sleeping, our last sleeping together was not quite right. Jesus. <laughs> oh my God, flames on the side of my face. Okay. <laughs> so she had to later retract and apologize because it was a blatantly false statement, right? Um, these are people, these opponents are people who feel that the system is stacked against the accused, not the person who reported, and so it's tilted too far in that direction. So this week, DeVos met not just with survivors of assault and advocates who work with them, but with these opponents, these men's rights activists and accused rapists. So far, she hasn't said what she'll do about it, but the Trump administration has been very hostile to civil rights so far. I think that's like, you know, that's pretty objective statement, actually. And she did, DeVos did say at a press conference that the stories of those claiming to be wrongly accused of campus sexual assault, quote, are not often told, which is wrong and a men's rights activist, like, talking point. Okay, okay. So we don't know where Title IX is headed. We don't know what this administration will mean for how schools will handle harassment and violence on campus or what it will mean for how they manage equity in their sports programs, right? That's up, that matters too here. Okay, so that was a lot. 
Thanks for letting me say all that, sticking with me. I want to hear you guys' thoughts. Um, if if you just like to scream into a pillow for like two minutes, that would be fine too. Um, but Lindsay, why don't I throw it to you? Where are you on this right now? How do you feel after this week? <laughs> I don't feel great, Jess. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't feel super great. Um, it, it seems like... I went into all of this with Betsy DeVos and with with Trump, and I very quickly, along with some of my colleagues, kind of planted out the worst case scenarios here. And I think even in the back of my mind, as I was planting this out, it seemed so bad that it just didn't seem like, like, I think I hoped that I was being alarmist, you know, like, like right. maybe all these things people say about the media are right. <laughs> and I'm just being ridiculous. Um, and it's turned out to be worse than I could have ever, ever imagined. Um, and I think that Jess pretty well covered the impact that all of this will have on the sexual assault statutes of Title IX, which has been such an important part of the way that the law has developed throughout the years. But also that part is still very new and we still have a long way to go with that part. And so it's very frustrated that any progress we have just recently made is now seeming like it's going to not just stop, but go being thrown off the cliff. Um, And that goes beyond just you know, how damaging their actions are. But the words matter, too. I know that girls who girls don't report sexual assault when they're victims because they're afraid they blame themselves. They think about statements like the one the DOE said this week uh, that people think that 90 percent of it is just regret. These are things that girls and women internalize. And then it keeps them from not only seeking um you know, any sort of justice or protection but from, from seeking any sort of mental mental health or any treatment options that they might need, whether it's for their physical or mental health, because they just blame themselves. So it's just the most damaging thing. But quickly, I just want to elaborate on how the the fact that the Title IX, that they are rolling back the budget for the Office of Civil Rights, that's not just going to impact the sexual assault parts of the statute, but this is also really, really bad for LGBTQ rights, especially for the transgender community, because there have been a lot of people who are now in the Office of Civil Rights who basically do not believe in, in protections for the transgender community, instead believe the things that we that the rest of us women need protection from the transgender community, which of course, it's just the opposite. Um, And the ambiguity that the Office of Civil Rights is um, making with their statements refusing to follow the transgender guidelines that were set forth by the Obama administration. This is already creating a sense of lack of clarity. And like I said, ambiguity that is already causing wreaking havoc on the local level because students and parents don't know what their rights are when they're coming forward um, for cases of discrimination. And look, this also impacts athletics. I know that uh, people think, I think that the athletics portion of Title IX is is done and that that's already been accomplished. But the truth is that 80% of the complaints that go to the Office of Civil Rights about Title IX 
are athletics related. So that means that they are from women and girls in sports, primarily who do not believe that they are being given equal access or equal treatment for sports. And so when you when you slice your budget, and you take down the amount of these cases that can be considered and looked at, that's going to disproportionately then impact the athletics because that's where 80% of the complaints are coming from. And look, right now, two in five girls are playing sports in school now compared to just one in 27 before Title IX. So even though two in five girls are now playing sports in school compared to just one in 27 when Title IX was enacted, girls still have 1.2 million fewer opportunities to play sports in high school than boys. And girls are still twice as likely as boys to enter sports later in life, drop out of sports earlier in life, and be inactive overall. Yeah, and we know that it's so important what you get from playing in sport. Like, I've probably talked about it on this podcast before, but the United Nations has even done studies on this, like how how incredibly important it can be. So this is critical, right? Uh, Brenda, as um, a faculty member at a university, do you have something that you'd like to say about all this? I'm crying inside. Um, I really am. Uh, The university functions only when students and faculty can feel safe. I mean, that's how you have free exchanges of ideas. And that's what makes you as higher education a sought-after place to be. It is the bedrock of what we do. And we are failing miserably. We need, faculty need to be leading the campaign to protect Title IX. We need to be educating our students, our colleagues, our representatives. I mean, what is tenure for? right? The reason tenure is there is so you don't get fired for doing, for trying to protect civil rights, for trying to make sure they happen. So if you have tenure, get yourself together and fight for Title IX. Get active in shared governance. You'll remember in Rutgers a few years ago, it was the faculty that forced Tim Pernetti to resign as AD, right? It's the faculty that can do that. They have that power in many universities. It's different in everyone. And and the administration will try to keep you out, but you have to keep knocking on that door. And so, you know, it is your job and your mandate. And I just feel like, you know, we really need to step up our, our game here. Yeah, this is such an incredibly critical issue. And it feels like a really critical moment for it. I will say, uh, the one thing about Title IX is that it is a law, and a lot of what's been worked out so far has been in law courts. No, no new university has ever been punished by the federal government for violating Title IX to the point where they remove their federal funding, which is sort of uh, the one big punishment that the federal government can do. The place where universities have had to pay is, is when they've been sued in court. And so, you know, that will continue no matter what um, happens with these guidelines. And so that's like the one glimmer of hope that I hold on to at this point. Okay, so after after all of that, uh, now it's time to release some of our aggression and the part of the show that we call the burn pile, where we pile up all the things we've hated this week in sports and then set them aflame. Courtney, why don't you kick it off. I'm happy to kick it off and I have just the the right thing to start the burn pile because every thing that's burning needs a little bit of like kindling, right? So paper is a really good way of doing that. And I got to I got to throw the British tabloids under the bus here. <laughs> um it's been, you know, one of my favorite things, you know, kind of a guilty pleasure I suppose whenever I come to Wimbledon or when I'm in the UK is to 
go through the British tabloids because you do read them, they're around, you pick them up, and it's just absurd headline after absurd headline, and you just see, you know, just a lot of not casual sexism, just right and outright sexism in headlines and how they cover, in particular, women's tennis during the fortnight, and it's frustrating. And I feel like I finally reached my tipping point where I no longer. It's kind of like how I used to love reading Us Weekly, and then Brittany like shaved her head and had her meltdown. I was like, yeah, no, I no longer read any tabloids whatsoever. Like you guys create this this beast, I can't yeah. do it. Um, so so yeah, so this was finally the tipping point. The piece in question that finally threw me over was uh, Johanna Conta, as I was talking about before, British uh, number one. She beat Simona Halep uh, in a great uh, quarterfinal. And so she had already won. And I kind of thought, well, you know, obviously all the coverage will be about Joe, you know, uh, making the semifinals and potentially becoming the first British female champion at Wimbledon in 40 years, which would be amazing. Um, but so they did do some of the match write-ups about the match, but then they also had to build in, and this was particularly the Daily Mail or the Daily Fail, as we all know, um, wrote a, a side story or embedded into their match report the fact that Simona Halep, when she was a teenager, had a breast reduction surgery. What? So it was all of this stuff about, yeah, she had breast reduction surgery here before and after photos. She went from a 36 double D to whatever she is now. I don't know. Um, and all this, and it helped her tennis, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, really? This is in your match report? Like with photo, with picture, with everything. And I was like, dude, I'm so over you guys. Like I'm done. I'm just so done with all of it. They go into press conferences. They completely misrepresent, you know, what one player says to try and create discord with another player. Um, they always key in on marginal controversial things that aren't even controversial. Like, oh, you know, it seemed like you got mad at the umpire there. It's like, no, not really. You know, they just missed a call and I was just correcting it. And then it's like, you know, uh, blah, blah, blah player has a row with umpire over da, 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 da. And it's just such, because you have to understand Britain's role within tennis. They are the ones that drive the conversation, whether we like it or not. Wimbledon is the tournament that it is within the tennis calendar. It is the crown jewel, uh, whether people like it or not. Um, the spotlight on the sport is no brighter than, than at Wimbledon. And so when casual tennis fans or casual people, not even tennis fans, are like picking up the tabloids and they're getting their news from them, which Britain still has a very robust print uh, media landscape. And that's the way that the women's sport is being covered. You know, here's Joanna Conta's muffin recipe. It's like, well, like, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine if that's one of like a hundred legit pieces that are being written about her tennis. But when that's literally the only angle you have, like, screw you. Like, I don't like it. It's really, really infuriating. It just makes me so, so mad. Like, my shoulders right now are up at my ears. Um, <laughs> I, it, it's, I can't do it anymore. I just can't. It used to be funny because it used to be a bit of a novelty. But now, like, you know, that I, that I cover the tour full time and I see how much these women work and how much they sacrifice and how much it kills them to do this sport and the sacrifices they have to make to have everything so trivialized for clicks um, and have a, a, a rabid public eat it up like it's fact. Um, it, I just want to slap everyone. It just, it just pisses me off to no end. So British tabloids, sorry, done with you, never again. Burn, burn it. So my burn pile this week is pretty obvious and I just don't care because I, I want to do this. So Floyd Mayweather, 
a perpetual visitor to the metaphorical burn pile. He's going to fight Conor McGregor, I think. I mean, I guess. I haven't really paid much attention to it. I assume it's a boxing match. Um, But even with my ostrich-like attempt to avoid this thing, it was almost impossible this week to do that because the two were on a press tour promoting this fight. Patrick Redford at Deadspin titled it, quote, The Press Tour from Hell, which is probably like a nice way to say what happened this week. It has been a sexist racist, homophobic mess. I don't even want to begin to describe the things that these men have said to each other, about each other. It is truly disgusting. Uh, And so even if, like, if I was being the most gracious that I could possibly be and say that this is a performance and not necessarily who these men are, and I don't really think that's true, but even if I was going to say that, this, it would just show how gross the sport is, that this is the type of performance that they think fans want to see. I mean, is it possible, you guys, for me to wish to never hear anything about either of these men ever again and that wish to come true? <laughs> I just want to burn it. So that's mine this week, burning it. Burn it all. Burn it. All right, Lindsay, what do you have for us? Oh, you know, our good friends, the IOC, (laughs) Uh, the International Olympic Committee, uh, the corrupt people who hold one of my favorite events. So that is a constant struggle for myself. Um, But look, this this week, there's tons going on. They've they have these big meetings. They approved a plan to award dual Olympic host, which essentially is paving the way people are assuming for in September, the official vote to come down to have the Olympics in Paris in 2024 and Los Angeles in 2028. I have been doing a lot of talking with some Olympic organizers and anti-Olympic organizers in Los Angeles this week. I'm going to save that stuff for when I actually write my piece so I know a little bit more. But let's just say it's all crap. (laughs) But this week's specific thing I would like to burn is that the IOC has balked at helping the Rio Olympic organizers pay a debt estimated at 35 to $40 million. And what we're having here is that Rio is still in drastic debt from the Olympics that were awarded to them when they had the Olympics, um, when their economy was at an all-time high, and by the time the Olympics were held, their economy was at an all-time low, and things were a disaster in Brazil. And right now, Rio is trying to pay this debt, but it also owes a lot of money to uh, police, teachers, and other public employees who are being paid late. So that is super fun. And now the Olymp- the IOC will not bail them out and so teachers and public servants are going to continue to go unpaid in Rio. Burn. 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 All right, Brenda, why don't you bring us home? Okay, it's the week of repeat offenders. In this case, uh, FIFA. So for the past 38 years, there's been a ban on women in sports stadiums in Iran. And these brave-ass women protest their exclusion all year, every year. Okay, and one example is a group called Open Stadiums, sometimes known as White Scarves, which is a grassroots organization um, that these women founded seeking to reverse the ban. And so they've been, you know, fighting for decades, but there's been a recent upsurge in vocal support from male soccer players, which is amazing. 
And given that they've just, the Iranian national soccer team has just qualified for next year's World Cup, they, they seem to recognize that this is a good moment to press on this issue. So last month, the Iranian national soccer team captain, Masoud Sojai, used his meeting with President Hassan Rouhani to ask for him to remove the ban, which is pretty amazing. Then this past week, Iranian legend and former Baron player Ali Karimi followed up in similar fashion, which is flipping amazing. And maybe he can start a woke dude movement with Andy Murray. Um, <laughs> I'm not really sure, but it would be it would be an amazing it would be an amazing alliance there. But it's really the women who need to be you know amplified here because they've they've done all of this stuff, right? And so despite facing prison and other forms of violence, they're out there trying to be able to take public space. But Gianni Infantino, president of FIFA in his cushy Swiss, Swiss office, is like, hmm, that seems like troubled waters to enter. That seems like a little controversial. So um, I'd like to, to throw Gianni Infantino into the burn pile for his astonishing cowardice. Because if these women can get out there, I mean, what does he have to lose? Honestly, uh, just to support these women and these Iranian players who are also trying to be good allies. So FIFA and Infantino, once more, I'm throwing you to the burn pile. Burn. Always burn. Now let's celebrate some awesome women. The badass woman of the week is Venus Williams. Venus Williams is our Badass Woman of the Week because, quite simply, Venus Williams is the best of what sports is. Over the last two weeks, this 37-year-old woman who has an autoimmune disorder that zaps her energy, she made a remarkable run at Wimbledon. The five-time champion was focused, tough, and poised. She started the two weeks with an emotional press conference regarding a fatal accident she was a part of earlier this summer. During Wimbledon, the police determined she wasn't at fault though I'm sure that doesn't lessen the emotional angst of the entire thing. But she powered through each round, and her play was remarkable. She was a joy to watch. I'm so thankful that I got to grow up alongside Venus and Serena. I'm actually, I was born in between the two of them. Um, And that I still get to watch her play. Like, every time that I see her now, I still think, "I'm, I'm still watching her play at this high level. It's so exciting. She lost in the final, and I think we're going to get to Muguruza in a second. But when asked if she had a message for her sister, Serena, who is currently off tour because she is pregnant, Venus said, oh, I miss you. I tried my best to do the same things you do, but I think that there will be other opportunities. I do. I do too, Venus, and I can't wait. And that is why she is our badass woman of the week. Lindsay, honorable mention. Yeah. Uh, yes, definitely. Look, Venus did not play incredibly well in the final. And that is because of Garbine Muguruza, who I think could have literally beaten anyone the way she played that Wimbledon final. It was remarkable. I like Muguruza a lot. Uh, and she's just her game is incredible. She's got some attitude. She's got some personality. And look, I think she's great for the game. She's now won her second major. 
Every time she's made a slam final, she's faced a William sister. In the, like, imagine, like, you're growing up watching. Like, she was a kid watching these players. And now she's, like, in her early 20s. And they're still there every time she makes a Grand Slam <laughs> final. Like, I just think that's hysterical. But she's beaten two of them. So she's won two out of three of the Grand Slam finals she's been in. And lost to Serena once, beat Serena once, and now beaten Venus. So... There can be zero asterisks there. <laughs> um, and look, I hope that she finds this week in, week out consistency that we want from her. But uh, if this is all we get, I love it. So thank you, Garbine. And I also want to give out a shout out to Carolina Pliskova, who is, uh, Courtney, I believe the 23rd WTA number one. Is that correct? Bingo. Oh, 23rd. Good. So she did not become number one in the fashion I know that she would have liked to. There was not a crowning moment on center court. Uh, she lost in the second round to Magdalena Rybarakova, who made it all the way to the semifinal. So that was not really a horrible loss by any stretch of the imagination. But Pliskova, uh, if you want to hear about Pliskova, you should listen to Courtney's podcast, both No Challenges Remaining and the WT Insider, where she really likes to talk about how much she loves Carolina Pliskova. And I, I do her. <laughs> and I don't blame her. She is, uh, I think I'm probably quoting Courtney here, that if you had a tennis factory, you could create Carolina Pliskova. And look, in my mind, these these two players I'm talking about right now, Muguruza and Pliskova, I see so much of the insp- of the way the Williams sisters changed the game in these two players. From the power to the serving, I mean, one of the reasons that Pliskova is so impressive is that her serve, she's the only player, she might even, I'm not going to say she has a better serve than Serena Williams, because I think people would kill me, but uh, she is, her serve statistics are incredible. So I'm excited for the WTA, and as sad as I was to see Venus lose in the final uh, the WTA is in great hands, as I tweeted, old, young, and in between. And Courtney, you have one more tennis honorable mention for us, yes? I do, because it's, you know, it's all about tennis. Give us give us our moment. Um, but, uh, but yeah, my uh, badass woman of the week, it, it goes to uh, Judy Murray, um, just because if, it, you know, if, if it couldn't be Venus for me, which it is, so it's fine, Judy Murray gets the honorable mention because she not only is such a uh, an incredible represent- representative uh, in terms of, of just tennis within the UK and specifically Scotland, but she raised two of the wokest boys on the uh, on the tennis tour in Sir Andy Murray and his older brother Jamie Murray, who is actually playing in the mixed final today. Um, and Judy Murray, for those of you who don't know, yes, she's the mother of Andy Murray and Jamie Murray um, as a single mom basically was shuttling the boys around and pretty much built their games. I mean, she coached both of them from when they were very young. She um, scrapped together the finances to be able to send Andy to Spain to train alongside Rafa when he was younger. Um, you know, he she was the one that kind of went to Jamie and said, look, it doesn't look like it's going to happen for you in singles and we don't have the money to support a singles career. Maybe you should focus on doubles. And he became the doubles number one. Um, she's amazing in every single way in terms of how she represents the sport and what I really find so admirable about Judy is everybody talks about Andy and Jamie but what she does on the grassroots level for tennis in Scotland and in the UK is incredible she literally uh, because she really thought that you know tennis Scotland would use the Murray brothers success to really build Scottish tennis 
She's been disappointed by how slow they have been to capitalize on, on Andy in particular. So she has gone around. She has this thing called Miss Hits, which is、um, a bunch of、uh, clinics that she drives around in a van from tennis club to tennis club, getting young girls to fall in love with the sport. Getting that, you know, brings them rackets, brings them tennis balls, runs them around, shows parents, and this is really important. Educates parents. Look, tennis is, especially in the UK, an expensive sport. She didn't have the money, but she shows them, like you know, the boys. They learned how to be competitive. They loved competing with each other. It rains all the time in Scotland, up in Dunblane, where they're from. So we in the living room, I would just blow up a, a balloon, and they would play tennis in the living room with the couches, the net. Um, there are ways to foster athleticism、um, and love for the sport that don't involve, you know, paying hundreds of thousands of pounds to a local club to get court time, and that's really what Judy Murray is trying to, 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 to teach parents, to teach young coaches, to teach young kids, especially young girls. I think we're going to see a huge boon with respect to women's tennis in Britain, and it. In the future, and it will be not because of the LTA. It will not be because of any federation. It won't be because of Joe Conte. It won't be because of Andy Murray. It'll be because of Judy Murray and the nonstop work she puts in. She's a badass lady,、um, and I have so much respect for her. So, thank you, Judy Murray, for everything that you do in tennis. That was wonderful.、Um, I also want to talk about girls and youth sports. So, this week I wrote a profile for Bleacher Report about two all-girls youth travel baseball teams. They're called Girls Travel Baseball. The girls in the piece are all somewhere between ten and thirteen years old. They all also play on travel teams where they are the only girl on the team, and they all just love baseball so much, and they want to be able to play it as long as possible, which is actually a really difficult thing to do for girls in this country. Even though baseball is our national pastime, most girls get shuffled out of the sport of baseball before they hit double digits in age. Uh, the piece got a ton of positive response. The MLB teams were reaching out to the girls. The National Baseball Hall of Fame contacted the organization. Kate Fagan named them her Hero of the Week on ESPN's Outside the Lines. It was, it was so exciting.、Um, at the same time, they got a ton of backlash, mainly from men, some from boys, who just can't stomach the idea that girls play baseball or would want to dream of playing in the majors or whatever the hell it is that these people are upset about. I don't understand it. And you know, these girls are just on the cuffs. A lot of them have social media, so they they weren't. You know, sheltered from this response, and so I just want to give them a shout out this week. These girls are amazing. I was proud to meet them and get to write about them, and I want them to keep being badasses. All right. So last thing on this episode, you guys, what sporting events are you looking forward to this week, Bren? What What are you looking forward to? I am looking forward to the Euros.、Um, this is UEFA's Women's Cup. So, for those that don't follow women's soccer, it's a continental tournament contested between the different national teams, and it kicks off Sunday. The、um, today we're recording in the Netherlands, and、uh, since Europe's very much been the cradle of tournaments since the 1980s, it's super exciting that now it's 16 teams. It's expanded. So. The group stage powerhouse match for this week, I would say, is between Sweden and Germany, which revisits last year's Olympics game. You know where Germany beat 
Sweden and Rio to win the gold. So Sweden's coach, the former U.S. head coach, Pia Sundash, and German coach is Steffi Jones. So you've got two brilliant former players coaching. It should be the chess game of the whole tournament. So I'm really excited about that, and that's that's today. Um, and then and then look for sentimental rivalries. One of the great things about this tournament is the frenemy matches: Scotland, England, <laughs> Scotland, England, Spain, and Portugal. But for those more elegant and technical football fans, uh, France should should show up. And I'm always a sucker for that team, and they're playing Iceland. If you want to watch it, it's on ESPN and Univision. Univision. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty psyched about that this week. Courtney, I think you might also be looking forward to some soccer, football. I am. I don't get to watch a ton of other sports just based on my travel schedule. So I'm finally going home back to, to California on Monday. Yay. Very excited about it, and um, and I'm very excited to kind of have a few days at least or a couple of weeks to get right back in with the NWSL. I'm looking forward to Saturday's showdown between the Chicago Red Stars and the Orlando Pride. Um, they're two teams that I really enjoy watching. They, they, they're two teams that have a lot of the, the U.S. women's national team players that I enjoy. Uh, so the Red Stars are number two at the table at the moment uh, behind North Carolina, and the Pride are down at number six, but the Red Stars are chasing that top spot. And uh, yeah, I'm just really looking forward to settling in, cracking open a beer, um, and watching, you know, Alex Morgan versus Kristen Press. Uh, Marta, I just, I love watching Marta. Um, and seeing her with the pride is awesome. Uh, Julie Ertz, Sam Kerr. I mean, it's it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. I just, I, I, I just want to watch some badass ladies play some sports other than tennis, because obviously they do in tennis, but I, I need to, I need to see something different. <laughs> Lindsay, how about you? Yeah, on that theme, I'd like to focus on the WNBA. I have a very exciting trip this week. I get to go to Seattle on a reporting trip for Think Progress, where I'm going to be working on a few stories, um, but a couple are WNBA related. Um, I'm going to be there as a Seattle Storm take on the Chicago Sky on Tuesday night. And this is their game where they're officially partnering with Planned Parenthood. So I will be there at the rally they're holding before the game, and I'll be there during the game. And I'm excited to talk to the players and to kind of witness this historical moment in athlete activism. Um, I will also be at the WNBA All-Star Game in Seattle on Saturday. So I'm going to bookend my trip with two really exciting WNBA events. I am uh, and already practicing being composed around all these WNBA All-Stars and <laughs> just really can't wait. I mean, it's it's a it's a really great lineup. I hope that injuries, we had a couple of injuries on Friday night. You have Brittany Griner, who is now out for three to four weeks. Oh, no. Um, which is really sad. Uh, she was not voted as an All-Star starter, which is ridiculous because she's having an MVP season. But she would have likely been there as a reserve, but now will not. Elena Deladon was also injured, as was Taylor Hill, and we're not sure the updates on their injuries. But regardless, there should be a great lineup. And I think that game will, might actually be on ABC. And there will be a, uh, a three-point competition. There, The WNBA hasn't done a three-point competition in quite some time, but there will be one during halftime. So everybody tune into that. It'll be fun. Wow, that that all sounds so exciting. I'm really looking forward to the Euros and to the WNBA All-Star Game, so that's what I will be watching this week. Thank you all for joining us. This week's episode is dedicated to Tuna, 
Our co-host, Shireen Ahmed's dear cat, who passed on earlier this week. He has been a furry friend of the show, and we know how much he will be missed. Rest well, Tuna. A huge thank you to Courtney Nguyen for co-hosting with us today. Courtney, it has been a pleasure. Where can our listeners find you on the World Wide Web? Uh, thank you. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so this has been so much fun. Um, you can find uh, the stuff that I do for the WTA at www.wtatennis.com. Also on the WTA Insider podcast, if you want to keep track with the women's tennis tour on a weekly basis, uh, the No Challenges Remaining podcast, and I'm on Twitter at 40 Deuce Twits. This week's episode of Burn It All Down was co-hosted by Brenda Elsie, Lindsay Gibbs, and me, Jessica Luther. It was edited and mixed by Ellie Gordon Marshall. If you would like to check out more of Ellie's outstanding work, her website is elliegm.com. That's E-L-L-I-E-G-M.com. You can find Burn It All Down on Facebook and Twitter. If you want to subscribe to Burn It All Down, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, a.k.a. iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and tune in. Show notes and links for each episode are on our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You can also email us from the site to give us feedback. We'd love to hear from you. And if you enjoyed this week's show, we'd love it if you'd share this episode with friends on social media. And please rate the show at whichever place you listen to it. The ratings help us reach new listeners who need this feminist sports podcast but don't yet know it exists. Please take some time to check out our GoFundMe page and consider making a small donation. We really want to improve this podcast and make it a sustainable endeavor. We're really grateful to everyone who has contributed so far. That's it for Burn It All Down. Until next week.